This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. The Ned Group Investments Global Flexible Fund is managed by First Pacific Advisors, or FPA, from Los Angeles. So, as you can imagine, they're not going to be at their most sprightly at 1.40 a.m. in the morning. Either we'd be dragging them out of bed or from one of the trendy wine bars in Santa Monica. So, Mahaini Naidu, my colleague, caught up with Brian Selmo earlier this week to record the session for us. So I'm gonna, just going to let the, the video play now. Stay alert during this video. Brian shares a number of great information nuggets and watch out for the fireworks at the end. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our first quarter Global Fund Manager Workshop. I'm Mahaini Naidu, Investment Analyst at Ned Group Investments. And today we are joined by Brian Selmo of, of FPA, co-portfolio manager of the Ned Group Investments Global Flexible Fund. Brian joined the firm in 2008 and serves as portfolio manager and head of research of the contrarian value strategy. Brian will be talking to us today about how the fund has fared and some of the drivers of performance over the past three months and one year. He will also share some insights into where the team is finding value today and how they have positioned the fund to avoid a permanent impairment of capital if there are further market downturns, while still participating in market upside to deliver on the fund's growth objectives through a full market cycle. Brian, welcome, and over to you. Thanks, Mohini. Thank you for having me today for the first quarter fund update. We can move on to the next slide, and we'll briefly talk about the sort of objective and mandate of the fund. As Mohini mentioned, it's for equity-like returns while avoiding permanent impairments of capital. And we do this over a global mandate where we invest in equities across the globe and then also invest in high yield and distressed debt, uh, really primarily in the U.S. market. So we've titled this the beginning of the end, and I'm really getting at the end of the pandemic. There's obviously been a lot of hope and success with uh, vaccines, and I think that we're hopeful, and, and certainly you can see markets are hopeful, that the pandemic is going to be in the rearview mirror and that global economies will come out of it with quite a bit of strength, um, and there'll be an opportunity for sort of uh, attractive investment opportunities on the back of that. But we never know uh, whether it's the end, whether it's the beginning of the end, or really how the economy will perform on the back end of it. So with that as an overview, let's move forward on the slide. So looking at our portfolio, we're positioned about 70% in equities, and as you can see, very little in bonds. The cash position is sort of static, a little bit down over the course of the last year. And I think there's a few things we're thinking about here. One is the relative attractiveness of equities compared to other alternatives. So when we think about yields, they're incredibly low. And then two, wanting to invest in a diversified manner across a number of different names to provide ourselves a defensive characteristic over and through market cycles or through the uncertainty that might come. So here you can see where the portfolio is allocated. This is on a domicile of country in terms of where the companies are. And I, I wouldn't say that we spend too much time thinking about where the companies are domiciled. If we now go on to the next slide, we really spend a lot more time thinking about where the economic center of gravity is for our portfolio and for our companies. And there you can see, you know, we're even more international in nature. Now, we have increased exposure to companies domiciled outside of the U.S. in a meaningful way over the last couple of years. And that's really in response to valuation and opportunity, where we've seen 
cheaper valuations and maybe a greater discount to intrinsic value in some names that happen to trade in markets outside the U.S. But what's really probably most relevant when you think about the performance or economics of the business over time is where the revenue is generated. And there you see that the portfolio is really pretty fully diversified around the world, getting a pretty blanket coverage of where, uh, you know, I'll say economic activity is in the world today. So in the last quarter, we've added a number of names that I think I would broadly describe as more defensive in terms of their underlying businesses, sort of consumer staple type or software companies. We've reduced some positions in financials as those have performed well and traded valuations that are less interesting to us at this point. I'd also point out that Willis Towers Watson is scheduled to be acquired by Aon, which is internationally domiciled. So really three of the four new positions uh, are international uh, in nature in terms of domicile. Moving on. So here's the performance over the three months, six months, one year, three years, and five years. Um, and certainly the last year really reflects a period of somewhat off the bottom of the financial or of the global pandemic. And that's given a springboard to really, um, you know, indexes, markets, as well as our portfolio. Certainly a year ago, our performance looked much worse, but that's kind of the nature of uh, investing in a largely equity portfolio is that there are going to be times when, you know, markets are very unfavorable. And if your underlying research is, you know, solid and the businesses are um, strong, you know, you would expect to come through that and, you know, kind of revert to some sort of normal um, valuation or market outlook. So today the world is has a very different outlook than it did a year ago. Today, people are very optimistic whereas a year ago, people were very uh, pessimistic and, and really scared and probably scared for good reason because there was a great health unknown at that time. So here you can see the contributors by name. And, you know, I think we would tend to focus on the trailing 12 months as being the more, you know, relevant um, time period to look at. And, you know, off of that time period, there's really been broad, strong performance across the portfolio. And really, a lot of our larger names have been the key drivers of uh, results over that time. There really isn't much to report in terms of losses. Many of those are names that were either exited last year entirely or very recently purchased, which you can see with uh, just the takeaway and Alteryx in the uh, first quarter. And so it's really no material losses over the uh, last 12 months. So... This is just a quick overview of interest rates. And, you know, this kind of ties back to the headline, the beginning of the end. You know, it may be the beginning of the end of the pandemic, very hopefully, I would say, for us and probably everyone on the call. But it may also be the beginning of the end of super ultra low interest rates. And that could have very different um, impacts on financial assets. Of course, we don't know, but we do observe that it's a think probably a large risk for the developed uh, economies is that interest rates have been very, very low for a long period of time. And that's probably become embedded in a lot of companies' capital structures, as well as government fundings. And if something were to disrupt that, you know, there could be uh, some negative tag-on effects. This is just to remind everyone, um, you know, this would be kind of what I would call the dog that didn't bark last year. So credit and spreads in high yield, there really hasn't been um, much opportunity here. You can see that current spreads are pretty low as well as absolute yields are pretty low. And so 
this chart helps account for, you know, why we have so little going on in credit right now. So I guess this would sort of highlight some of the ideas or topics that we're thinking about or, or things that are going through the portfolio. You know, one, we do have the end of the pandemic, which is terrific. Maybe we have the, you know, end of some of the uh, sort of most speculative aspects of the market and sort of the infatuation with, um, you know, hyper growth type businesses, but maybe not. Maybe it's the end of super low interest rates, but again, maybe not. You know, I think for us, we want to continuously improve the business quality of the uh, companies we own and what the portfolio looks like. And then I think international versus U.S., I would say it maybe is something that we're agnostic about, but it's something that you've seen start to show up in the portfolio as a sort of a gradual shift over the last number of years. And that is continuing in the most recent quarter. But again, we're doing that on a you know bottoms up opportunistic basis. And that's my summary of the first quarter and a uh, brief overview of some of the themes going on in the uh, fund. Thanks, Brian, for those useful insights. Can you talk to us about some of the top positions you have in the fund today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So if we look at this slide with our top 10 holdings, you can see a number of names, if you're familiar with the fund, that have been here if we would have looked a year ago, and some new names that were bought or added to opportunistically during the sell-off. So as many would know, we have an average five-year holding period in our fund. So many of the names will still be in different sizes, but will be in the portfolio over a long period of time. And starting with something like Alphabet, which we originally bought over a decade ago and have continued to hold on the back of the strength of the company's underlying business. Comcast is a business with a very strong position in the United States in broadband and video. And Comcast is a position that we added to materially during the sell-off last year. Things like Lafarge and AIG are more cyclical in nature and traded down to some extremely cheap valuations, which allowed us to increase their size as well through the pandemic and during parts of last year. If we move through the rest of the names, many of them benefit from strong secular trends and would exhibit the characteristics of high quality franchise businesses, such as high returns on invested capital, strong free cash flow generation, and appropriate shareholder-friendly deployment of excess cash. We're also happy to be in companies such as GBL, Group Bruxelles Lambert, where there is an owner-operator or a long-term shareholder or family in control of the capital allocation decisions. That type of setup is something that you'll see throughout our portfolio and is something that we think matters a great deal when you end up holding businesses over longer periods of time, such as we do in the contrarian portfolio. You're very close to a 70% risk exposure in the portfolio at the moment. We saw from one of your earlier slides that you've been a lot more active in the portfolio over the last year than you have been in many of the previous years. Is there a scenario where you could see yourself being even more invested in risk assets, like 80 or even 90%, similar to how you were around 2007, 2008, I think it was? Yeah, this is always the difficult question of opportunity versus valuation versus cash, which is really a down payment on future opportunities. And so we never know what the market is going to do. We certainly wouldn't have over a year ago expected, you know, 
for stocks to be down 40 or 50 percent, or in some cases even more, over a two or three week period last March. And so when valuations get somewhat more stretched, we will tend to build up a cash position, not because we necessarily aspire to own cash over time. We don't. We would really aspire to be more invested, but because we think the risk reward starts to change in the individual names that we own or in the opportunity set that's available to us. So it's a balancing act, certainly. I think over the last year, you would notice that the portfolio was more invested over time. We started to sell some things down in the first quarter this year, but we were in the mid to high 70s invested uh, in primarily in equities last year. As we've talked about before, the credit opportunity wasn't there to the same degree. I think one of the scenarios that we've always envisioned where we would be much more invested in risk assets is one where you had an opportunity in both credit and in equities. And there was an expectation, which turned out to be wrong early in the pandemic last year, that the credit side of the uh, portfolio would expand dramatically. Now, that didn't come to pass, probably because of a lot of actions that the Fed took to normalize the bond market in the United States and efforts that other governments took to sort of uh, step in and fill the gap that might have developed on the credit side had a more traditional cycle taken place. I think the other thing that we would notice or observe and attention in terms of holding cash is that over time, currencies depreciate and currencies are not a terrific asset to hold. So I think we want to opportunistically increase exposures when we find um, good opportunities and opportunistically decrease exposures when we think that the opportunity set is less rich. Now, overall, I think we would aspire to average a higher exposure to risk assets, particularly equities, over time. Thanks. And with cash yielding up until a little, a few months ago, negative real rates, still maintaining a sort of 25 to 30 percent exposure, are there any areas you're considering to potentially give you a little bit more of a positive return in the portfolio? We are, and we're working on some things specifically in the cash portfolio where we may be able to do better than uh, sort of the short-term uh, either treasuries or commercial paper that we tend to purchase. And so we're working on that. We look at that actively, but primarily, and as a first principle, we don't want to take risk with that part of the portfolio. So we want to make sure that that is both defensive and provides us adequate resources to play offense in the event or when markets sell off. Because while things are very positive today and everything seems wonderful in terms of outlook, we do know that there will be significant market opportunities and sell-offs at future points. The other thing I would say is, you know, there is a pretty favorable and rosy outlook today in the world, but there's plenty of things that also one can worry about. And I think that the potentially disruptive issues are largely around interest rates and probably inflation in the West as well. And so we we don't know how those things will play out or if or when they'll be disruptive. But we do know that when everyone has a view or a perspective that there's going to be smooth sailings, it's often a good time to take some measures to add some defensiveness to a portfolio or to prepare for those times when things aren't quite so good or when there are, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's economic excess 
or whether it's just an industry or sector going through some difficulty. I think we're pretty confident that that will recur. I encourage everyone to think about how differently they felt a year ago when they probably wished that the portfolio had less invested in risk assets and wasn't buying, you know, a lot of the positions that we were. And so it's a bit of a uh, tug of war, right, between opportunistically buying things and having a portfolio that can earn positive and attractive absolute returns while also avoiding sort of the permanent impairments. And I think when we talk about permanent impairments, we're really thinking about a few things. One is if you're in a business that loses competitive relevance or, uh, you know, it's no longer able to sort of generate the kind of cash or earnings power that one had been expecting, you know, that's certainly a way that you could uh, permanently impair your position. But you can also permanently impair your position uh, if you just pay too much for a good asset, right? At some price, any asset is uh, is going to produce an unattractive return, no matter how attractive that asset is. And so I think that those two things are things that we want to minimize in the portfolio. And we do that both on an individual basis, company specific, but also on a portfolio level basis. And cash can be very helpful uh, on a portfolio level. One of the statements the contrarian value team makes in describing your philosophy is that you look at what can go wrong. So sitting here today with markets having run really hard, up 50, 60%, what is it that you're thinking could go wrong from this point on? What are some of the scenarios you're considering? I want to answer this with some humility because a year and a half ago, I wouldn't have said pandemic. So I think we all probably know how incapable we are to uh, project or know the future. But I think that there are things ranging from, you know, geopolitical conflicts or tensions in different parts of the world to, um, you know, more directly economic issues, which we talked about a little bit earlier, and those being largely around rates and inflation. I mean, I think the, the developed world, Europe and the U.S., have really um, feasted on very, very low rates for a long period of time. And if that were to reverse, it would probably change some behavior it would probably also uh, have an impact on economic behavior. But that doesn't mean that it will change. Low rates could continue for a very long period of time, too. And I think that those are really twin tensions, right? If you're a saver and rates are at 1% or maybe even 2%, but if they stay there for the you know rest of your life or for the saving period that you have in mind, that's a real big risk. On the other hand, if you have nothing but exposure to very high multiple um, assets, well, then any kind of change in those rates, if they were to go up, that's probably a very big risk to how you're positioned. And so I, I think that there's not one answer, I think, but you want to have a diversified approach of productive assets that you think can uh, compound their intrinsic value over time and that that should set you up to do reasonably well whatever might come from sort of the macro issues or shocks. And I think that we want to, on a portfolio basis, have well-financed, strong companies. And then when we think that there's a little bit less favorable of a setup, allow the cash position to build slightly. And then, of course, draw it down to try to be more invested over time. On that note, thank you very much, Brian. We really appreciate your time today and for sharing your thoughts, yours and the team's thoughts, what you're thinking about in positioning the portfolio to be resilient to market downturns 
and to be able to to capitalize on further market upside from here. And it really is very pleasing to see how performance has come back so strongly in the last six months. I don't want to jinx it, but thank you very much for yours and the team's hard work on delivering on this mandate. And thank you also to our investors from around the world who have joined us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your support. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay invested. Just in summary, uh, FPA view that the equity markets in aggregate around the world are at high valuations, but opportunities do exist, particularly outside the U.S. The corporate bond market isn't offering any particular attraction in terms of uh, valuation with the risk that you assume by entering that sort of asset class. And their cash holding is there as an access to provide opportunity in the future when they do see uh, valuations at more attractive levels. I'm going to sign off now and we're going to have a short break where we'll play a video that we've been circulating on our social media platforms where we're looking to attempt to help in the investor education space. You'll see a few more of these short videos coming out over time. Please stick around for the next uh, half of our session where we have three experienced investment thinkers talking with Anil Jugmahan, my colleague, um, and sharing some incredible insights with their portfolios. Thanks very much. How do you decide which is the right fund for you? Well, you can start by asking yourself two simple questions. What am I investing for and how long do I have to achieve my goal? Different savings goals have different timeframes, short, medium, or long-term. Your investment goal and the time you have to achieve it determines how much risk you can tolerate and which type of fund is best suited for your needs. Once you know your requirements, do your research before investing. Remember, a good fund should have the following. An experienced and reputable fund manager to give you professional help when you need it, reasonable or competitive fees, transparency and sufficient information to help you make informed choices. Use websites, fact sheets, and read as much as you can to stay in the know when you're investing. Knowledge is power. Visit netgroupinvestments.com or talk to your financial planner for more information. Netgroup Investments. Netgroup Collective Investments is an authorized collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Netgroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit netgroupinvestments.co.za.